Okay, if you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. When I was in uh, college and seminary, I used to like to backpack a lot. I don't get an opportunity to do as much now, but uh, it was one of my favorite hobbies. And some of you are asking, why? (laughs) Why? Why would you want to put, you know, 60 to 70 pounds on your back and walk through the woods, maybe it's raining on you or the sun is beating down or it could even be snowing and you're trudging through snow. Why would you, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to sleep on the ground in a tent and drink water from a dirty stream and uh, you know, not shower for a week? Why? And you know, I got to tell you, I, I, can't, I have no answer for you. I, I don't know. I, you know. If it doesn't really like naturally sound appealing to you, there really isn't a good answer. I can just tell you it's fun for me. I think it's really fun. And one of the games we used to play uh, with our friends when we go backpacking together is we try to slip a rock into the other person's backpack, right? Uh, unbeknownst, you you try to slip it in. You had to be really creative. They're not looking and maybe you'd wrap it in their sleeping bag so they couldn't immediately find it. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing when you actually pull the trick off, carry they carry a rock all day long, get to the end of the day, unload their backpack and discover, you know, an extra five or 10 pounds they've been carrying all day. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful, right? Unless it happens to you, then it's terrible. But it's a great trick. And then I was thinking about that this week. That's kind of what life is like sometimes. Somebody else just slips a rock into your pack. You didn't ask for it. You don't want it. You'd like to get rid of it, but there it is. And you discover you're carrying this extra weight. Circumstances just fall upon you that you didn't ask for, you didn't want. You'd maybe even like to unload them, but you can't. There they are. How do you respond when you're carrying burdens like that? I believe that our response shapes us. But our our response really shapes our soul. It makes us stronger people or it leaves us uh, bitter and empty. This morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the portrait of of three women, Luke chapters uh, 1 and 2, three women who carried burdens that they didn't necessarily ask for and they didn't want to carry But the way they carry these burdens really shaped their soul. So three women we're going to look at this morning. The first is Elizabeth. I'd like for you to read with me in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So it's Mother's Day and perhaps you're thinking, well, why are we talking about a woman who can't have children? (laughs) We should be talking about women who had children and how great it is to be a mom and how great it is to have children and raising children and how wonderful that is and maybe poke fun at dads a little bit because that's what we do on Mother's Day, right? Why are we talking about a woman who couldn't have children? Uh, Did you know that um, Mother's Day is the hardest day of the year for some women? There are almost certainly some women who stayed home today. They didn't want to come to church today. Because they didn't want to be reminded of this longing that is so deep in their hearts. That has gone unfulfilled. And if you didn't know that this was a hard day... Don't, don't feel guilty about it. I didn't know it was a hard day until we joined the club of infertility, right? Club that we didn't want to join. We would love to get out of. Club that was an incredible trial for us. 
And it was in that point I really was awakened to how deep that, that struggle was. I remember one point um, my wife asked me, she said, she said, Brian, why is this so hard? I said, well, it's, it's so hard because for 47 times God said no. 48th time, God said yes. So after four years of infertility, we had our son. But we have a lot of friends who struggled much longer than four years. Some who, who went uh, four years and five years, six years, and then uh, forever in their entire lives. It, it was a longing that never actually was fulfilled. It's a burden to carry. A burden of an unfulfilled longing. Did you know that uh, in Scripture... Infertility is a major theological theme. Uh, Several characters, several really key women in the Bible battled infertility. Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah. And there are lessons to be learned from their lives, really profound theological lessons. Uh, The the big lesson is, is this, that God is doing great things in the world. And he's doing great things to accomplish redemption for people, to bring salvation to people. And he uses this longing of certain individuals as part of the process to bring redemption. In fact, if you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ, it is remarkable how many of these women battle and struggle deeply with infertility and the longing for a child. That's a part of Jesus' lineage. Because birth is a miracle, rebirth is a miracle. And God demonstrates through this process, through many of these women's lives, that he alone is the one who can bring life, ultimately bringing life through this lineage in Jesus Christ, the miracle of rebirth. Maybe that's a miracle that some of you have not experienced today. Birth is a miracle. Rebirth is a miracle. Rebirth happens that moment that you say, I believe, I believe that Jesus Christ is the one who can give me life and only Jesus can give me life. Only Jesus can remove that debt, that barrier that is created by sin and give me life that lasts forever. I believe and in that moment, God's spirit makes your spirit joined to God again and you become born again. And it's a miracle that transforms you, transforms your very nature And it can never be undone. Once you are born and then reborn, you will always be alive forever and ever and ever. And one of the lessons that this pattern of infertility teaches us is God's at work in the world. And God is the one and the only one who can give life. The other lesson is that God is paying attention to every individual. God is doing a work in each of these women's lives personally. Just on a personal level. To to shape their soul. To love God and to trust God. I once heard J. Oswald Sanders say that waiting is one of God's primary tools for sanctification. And I wrote it in my notes and I said to myself, I hate to wait. (laughs) I hate waiting. I love sanctification. I don't like waiting. Can I have one without the other? Honestly, I don't think there's a single individual that doesn't have to experience the process of sanctification through waiting, through longing for something that doesn't come immediately. And learning to long for it and long for it and long for it so deeply and waiting, waiting and waiting. And learning to trust God. You know, uh, some of these women uh, waited well and some did not wait well. Uh, Sarah did not begin by waiting well. You you recall that she had gone for, uh, I think, almost like 80 years wanting to have a child. No child. No child. And then God 
uh, sent an angel appear to Abraham and say, Abraham, you're going to have a child. And Sarah assumed that that meant her as well. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen for several months as she was waiting. And so she decided to stop waiting. And she said to Abraham, here, take Hagar, my maid, and thus the Middle East conflict. Okay, I'm, I know I skipped a few steps in there. There's more to it. But, but you know, basically, that's, that's how it all happened, right? It was a bad idea. She didn't wait well. She didn't wait well. Angel appeared again to Abraham and said, you're going to have a son. And he said, oh, God, please just make it easy on yourself and, and take Ishmael. Right? I already had one with Hagar. Please, I don't need any more of that in my life and in my family. He says, no. Uh-uh. It's going to be a child that comes from your own body. It's going to come from Sarah. And Abraham laughed. A few months later, God appeared again, angelic form. And Sarah overheard at this time that she was going to have a child. And she was about 90 at that point in time. And she laughed. <laughs> Seriously, God. Because it's hard to wait. And she didn't want to wait. Rachel did not wait well. Remember, Rachel was the younger daughter. It's the prettier one. Jacob wanted her and really loved her, but she couldn't have children. Jacob also got tricked into marrying Leah. That he didn't, he didn't love Leah, Leah the sister. He didn't love Leah. He didn't really want Leah as a wife, but Leah was able to have children. Rachel wanted children and couldn't have children. Leah wanted the love of her husband and couldn't get the love of her husband. So she had lots of kids to try to win the love of her husband, but she could never get it. And she wanted it. She longed for it. Rachel couldn't have children. She thought that that would fill her void. She had the love of her husband, but she didn't have children. She wanted children. And so, guess what she did? She took her maid, gave it to her husband. Leah had children, could never win the love of her husband. Then she stopped having children, and so guess what she did? She took her maid and gave it to her husband. Both these women had a hard time waiting because they were longing for something that they didn't have. And they wrestled deep, deep in their soul. There's another woman who really waited well. Her name is uh, Hannah. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah and his wife and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you do not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Okay, aside, but here's the lesson. Two wives is a bad idea, right? Probably as well two husbands is a good idea. It doesn't say so in the Bible, but it just doesn't work out well. Giving your maid over to your husband, bad idea, right? I mean, 
Leah, Rachel, Jacob, and all of their clan raised one of the most dysfunctional families in all of history. We know them as God's chosen people, right? (laughs) But they were a mess. And here, uh, the other wife is described as the rival who has sons and daughters and lots of them, and she's provoking Hannah. And her husband says, am I not better to you than, than 10 sons? Can't I make up for that void? And the answer is no. The answer is no. That, that hole in her heart for the thing that she's longing for most, it, it remains. Uh, apparently, she is uh, assuaged uh, uh, at least a little bit. It says in verse 9, Hannah rose after eating and drinking. He at least convinced her to, to get up and eat and to drink. But she got up after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, she greatly distressed prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. And I would argue that that her behavior is a pattern actually for us to follow. She didn't pretend that she was no longer longing for this thing. Instead, what she did is she brought it to the Lord. She brought it to the Lord, and she brought it to the Lord over and over and over and over and over again. Not denying that she longed for something, but instead grabbing a hold of the Lord and praying to the Lord, and even promising the Lord, Lord, if you grant my longing, I acknowledge that even the fulfillment of my longing is a gift from you, and I will just give it back. I will not cling to the fulfillment. And that's exactly what she did. In fact, she had a son, Samuel, and she raised him for a short period of time, and then she just turned him over to the Lord. Can you imagine how difficult that was? This child that she had longed for so long that she would take him and place him in the care of the priest and walk away. Walk away. I think that she waited well. She waited well. As J. Oswald Sanders says, waiting is one of the primary tools that God uses for sanctification. So what does it mean exactly to wait? Psalm chapter 27, verse 13. David writes, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That word for wait is translated in other settings as literally a cord. It's a rope. In other words, the the figurative idea is wrap yourself around the Lord. (laughs) To wait is not passive. To wait is active. It means to reach out and wrap yourself around the Lord. Don't pretend that you don't have longings in your heart that are not yet fulfilled. Instead, go to the Lord and wrap yourself around the Lord and cling to the Lord. And come over and over and over again. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, knock and keep on knocking. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. That's what the verb means. It means wrap yourself around. Continuously cling to the Lord. Elizabeth did not um, ultimately, I think, receive all that her heart longed for. She received a son, right? John the Baptist was her son. But she didn't get to keep John the Baptist for very long. He left home and he went into the wilderness. We don't know how long Elizabeth lived. Did she live long enough to see her son die at a young age? She didn't receive all those things. But she learned to cling to the Lord. And had to learn to cling to the Lord. 
to wait on the Lord. I know that some of you, uh, even this morning, are uh, carrying this burden, this rock of, of unfulfilled longings. And the Lord would say, cling to me. You, you don't know what I will do and can do in that process of you just wrapping yourself around me. You don't know what I will do in the lives of others throughout the world as you wrap yourself around me. Cling to the Lord. Elizabeth carried a burden, unfulfilled longing. Mary carried a burden. It was overwhelming responsibility. I want you to turn back to the book of Luke again, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, You know, when we have children we immediately begin to have hopes and dreams for their lives. We begin to imagine what great lives they're going to have and how they're going to impact the world, right? And and we begin uh, seeing things in them and we extrapolate way out into the future, right? Look how he drooled on that ball. He's going to be quarterback. He's amazing, right? Right? Watch, she she crawls. She's so graceful. She'll be a ballet dancer. Look at her poor milk out. She'll be a chemist. She's a genius. So accurate. I mean, you know, we just, we, we dream, really, we do. We dream, we imagine, we hope. What could they be? Well, Mary didn't have to dream, did she? The angel came to her and said, your child will be the son of God. He's going to be, in Old Testament terms, that means the king of Israel. But he's going to be the king who's the king forever, and not just over Israel, but his kingdom will expand and will cover all of the earth. That's who your child will be. No pressure. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You think it was harder or easier knowing what your child would be? I would argue that's a lot of pressure, right? Don't let Jesus play contact sports. I mean, we need to protect this child from injury because the fate of the whole world rests upon Jesus. Now, be a good mom. Oh my goodness, right? We have hopes, we have dreams, we have expectations. And then as moms, as dads, as parents, we feel then we must impart all of our wisdom Right to shape this life in the direction that we God has for this life. Right. This last week, I uh, put a little post on my my Facebook account. I said, "Share with me the best wisdom you received from your mom." And I I got tons of responses. I'm going to share just a few of these with you. Uh, Some of them uh, you can write down. You'll find them very helpful. I like this one. This is one of the first I received. It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Right? I let moms can pl- say things just really concisely and so true, so true. You can make the choice to be happy in any situation. Right? And I got a, a, a variation of that from my mom all the time. It's like, y- you have control of your attitude and only you. So control it, right? Be happy. <laughs> have you prayed about it? That's good advice. Get all worked up about stuff. Have you prayed about it yet? Have you stopped? Always tell the truth because the truth always comes out eventually. True. Mom always knows the truth. Somehow, I don't know. Bad decisions limit future options. That's a good one. 
I like this. Look with your eyes and not with your mouth, right? (laughs) Fortunately, we outgrow the need to hear that, right? But look with your eyes, not with your mouth. When you lay down with the dogs, you're going to get fleas. You know that tattoo is never going to come off, right? (laughs) For the ladies, never wear sandals with unpolished toes. For the guys, always wear clean underwear in case you have to go to the hospital. Oh, and one said uh, she received from her mom this advice, marry an Aggie. Right, there you go. Culturally relevant advice. And then this was, uh, this was, I thought, one of the best. Rules of the house. Your mother is always right. If your mother's wrong, refer back to rule number one. Amen. I got amen. Oh, probably lots of amens. Right? Uh, moms give us advice. They give us lots of advice. Why? Because they're carrying a burden of responsibility. And it's a heavy burden. How do, you, how do you respond, whether it's burden of parenting or some other burden? How do you respond when you're carrying overwhelming responsibility? I want us to read uh, Mary's response here in chapter 1, verse 34. She says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Notice again in verse 29, it says she was very perplexed. Literally, that word means to shake up or stir up thoroughly. Mary is shaken up. And so naturally, she asks a question. How can this be? (laughs) How can this be? But in her question is not disbelief at the word of God. It's just confusion. She she doesn't understand, how how can this actually work out? Because I'm not married. But she's not disbelieving. Compare that to Zacharias' response. Chapter 1, verse 18 Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In verse 20, behold, you should be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias did not believe. Mary believed. She just didn't know how this is all going to work out. So notice in verse 45, chapter 1, she's commended. Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She believed. She believed. She just was confused. She just didn't know how it would work out. Read again verse 38. Mary said then, behold the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Mary actually does not receive an answer. I mean, there's an explanation, a description, but she's told, you know, the power of the Most High is going to come upon you and you're going to be pregnant. She doesn't really get an answer in, in that she can fully understand in any form or fashion, really. And, and yet she says, okay, may it be done to me. I think it's interesting, the preposition there, not done for me, but done to me. As the Lord has said, I, I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. New parents have fears. Uh, for those of you who are not parents yet, you can't really understand it necessarily. 
But I hope for you someday that you will. I hope that you get married. I hope that you have children. It's not a promise that you will, but I hope that you do. And in that day, you will understand. Um, parents have fears. Right? It's, a, it's a frightening thing to be a parent. You have to take a test written and actually get in a car and drive to get your driver's license. But for a kid, you just got to pay the bill. Right? You pay the bill and they hand you a child. <laughs> you go, okay, here we go. And if you're a dad, you go, well, I hope they gave us the right one. But whatever, we got a kid. I mean, that's what we came here for. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's frightening. Now, what do we do? What do we do with this child? We bought a bunch of books, but it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And you know what? It doesn't get easier. As they get older, you, your fears shift, but your fears remain. Will, will they graduate? <laughs> will they get a job? Will they move home? Will they get married and have children and raise godly children? Will they love Jesus more than anything else? Will they be good and godly people? Right? It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. How do you handle that? How do you respond? C. Everett Coop, former sur- uh, Surgeon General, said, Life affords no greater responsibility, no greater privilege than the raising of the next generation. That is true, but I would say it's also really heavy. Right? And it may be this morning that uh, the, the burden that you feel like you're carrying is children, but it may be another burden. It may be a uh, burden of a, of a marriage that's not working well, or maybe the burden of a job job responsibilities or not having a job and needing a job to provide for that family could be all kinds of things that are a a burden of this. You feel like, man, I just don't know if I can get the job done. What do you do with that? I think it just starts with simple trust. As Mary said, behold the bond servant of the Lord. Lord, I belong to you. May it be done to me according to your word. That's just simple trust. Think about Mary's situation in particular. I, I, I think sometimes we, we just read the story so fast that we, we forget really the deep impact of this. Mary was probably around 14, 15 years old. Or she probably was betrothed to Jacob maybe around 13 years old. They're anticipating getting married. She's maybe about 15 years old. A 15, this is a 15-year-old girl, and an angel appears to her. That's enough. And then the angel says, you're going to get pregnant before you get married. <laughs> and then your child's going to be son of God. How overwhelming is that for this young girl? And yet, young girl with a, a really deep, deep spiritual life to reach out to the Lord in simple trust and say, okay, I trust you. I don't understand all of the explanation that you've given me, but I trust you. Simple trust, I think, is where it begins. The second is obedience. Um, we're not responsible for everything. We're responsible for some things. And so we do what we are responsible for, and then we trust the Lord with the outcomes. We're not responsible for outcomes. Particularly, I think, in this area of children, that's a good thing to remind ourselves of. We, we can't guarantee those outcomes. But we are responsible for certain investments along the way, and then we trust God with the final product, right? Uh, there's only one account of Jesus as a child. I wish there were so many more, but there's only one. It's in Luke chapter 2, toward the end of the chapter, verse 41. And I think it's instructive. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Jesus is about 12 years old now. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. 
And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. They got distracted. Jesus just goes off and does his own thing. He's 12, right? He's 12. But they supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went a day's journey. They began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, so one day, two days back, three more days, five days, you can't find your kid. (laughs) Man, I probably would have been a little more vocal than Mary after five days. In the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where did he sleep at night? And who fed him? Right? And did he get cold? And did he have did he have enough did he have an extra jacket? And was he wearing his shoes, the right shoes? Did he was he wearing clean underwear? I mean, you know? Oh my goodness. All of these fears and misgivings. When they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? <laughs> Such a great answer. I mean, he's the son of God, but he's still 12. What, why, why were you looking for me? Just because I've been gone from you for five days. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house or about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. In other words, uh, Joseph and Mary weren't perfect parents. They weren't. Uh, Jesus, they happened to have one perfect child, but the rest weren't. Right. And they didn't really know all that they should have done or could have done, but they did what they, they knew, right? And they fulfilled their responsibility to parent them. Jesus fulfilled his responsibility as well. He continued in subjection to them as they trained him on a human level to become a good and godly man. I don't know where I picked up this quote, but I love it. Relax. It is not your job to create a perfect child or to be a perfect parent. Neither is possible. No matter what your friends try and make you believe about their kids. (laughs) Parenting is rooted in God's grace, not my perfection. So, We obey. We do what God has called us to do, whether the situation is parenting or searching for a job or reconciling a relationship. Whatever that overwhelming burden is, we do what we are called to do, and then we simply trust God with the outcome and what he will do with the efforts that we have made. Remember this. God's always at work, people. God is always at work on a global scale, bringing redemption. God is always at work in your life. God is always at work in your children's lives. God doesn't cease working, right? Genesis 1, God creates and then he stops creating. We're told that he ceases or he rests, but then the fall happens and God gets to work again. And God has been working on redemption since the fall. In fact, Jesus' favorite day to work was the Sabbath which drove the religious leaders crazy, but his justification was this. My father is working, he has been working, and so I am working. Not working at creation, but working at redemption. And so I have to work right now. God is always at work. He's at work in your life. He's at work in your children's life. He's at work in your work life. He's at work in the lives of your extended family. God is at work, and so you can do what you're called to do and then rest and trust Psalm chapter 40, or Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
say, no, she couldn't. Well, the Lord says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. What is the Lord saying? Saying, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention to your life. I'm paying attention to your marriage. I'm paying attention to your parenting, to your children. I'm paying attention to your job. I'm on it. I'm on it. Do what I've revealed for you to do, and then trust me. Mary carried the burden of overwhelming responsibility. Anna carried the burden of loss and loneliness. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. We have just three verses that describe this woman. But it's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. It says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, let's get into the setting here. Uh, Anna was probably married around the age of 13, 14, 15. She was married for seven years, so she was a widow from age 20 to 84. So 64 years she lived as a widow. Her name is from a Hebrew word. It means grace, but there had to be a lot of days when she wondered, didn't necessarily feel like grace was upon her. She's a woman who lived for a long, long time with deep, deep loss. And I know that some of you are living with deep loss. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse. Maybe it's the loss of, of a marriage. The spouse left, and it's not what you longed for or expected. It's the loss of a child. I know we have many in our congregation who have suffered. That's a, that's a deep, deep loss. It's something we think, oh, how, how could that possibly happen? Broken, fallen world. It's the loss of, of a job, loss of a job that you really loved, loss of a another relationship, loss of your health. Many of you carry that deep, deep loss. Anna was a woman who carried loss for 64 years. How do you carry that burden? Uh, Two things I want to remind you of. The first is this. God never forgets. You feel alone, God never forgets. David wrote, You have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? They're not, they're not, it's not your bottle, it's God's bottle. God reaching down is the, is the beautiful image of this poetry. And it's God reaching down and he's got a bottle and he's collecting each and every one of your tears because he loves you. Remember this, even when you're suffering from loss and you're lonely, God never, ever forgets. He is always paying attention. Second, since you are here and you are living with loss and you are not with the Lord, the Lord has things for you to do. Uh, Anna was a prophetess. That means Anna had received words from the Lord. This is not the first word from the Lord that she had received. She had received other words from the Lord. And what did she do with that word from the Lord? Well, she went out and shared it. In fact, we're told that she stayed in the temple night and day serving the Lord with prayer and fasting. Praying and fasting for what? For Jesus, men and women. That's what she was waiting for. That's why she recognized Jesus when he came and began to talk to everyone about the redemption of Israel. She was a great commission prophetess. Anna, 
right? Anna, the evangelist, Anna, the disciple maker, Anna said, I I am alone. I am living with this loss, but I am useful to the kingdom of God. And so every day she devoted her life to making the kingdom of God, the first priority in people's lives. You should long for this. You should wait for this. God is going to send this. What? Here he is. Here he is. Here he is. Even in the midst of loss and loneliness, God had significant purposes for his life. Did, did, that, did that fill the hole of the loss? No, it didn't. It didn't. Those, those holes mark us. The losses mark us and they're part of what we carry through all of life. It changes us. It, that is. It's a burden. It's a rock you can't get out of your, your pack. But as you carry it, you can still become stronger and be useful to the kingdom of God and share. Don't miss that. So how do we apply this? Well, maybe this morning your burden is uh, an unfulfilled longing or an overwhelming burden of responsibility or loss and loneliness. Uh, I think the beginning point is uh, that you learn to wait for the Lord, right? which is not passive. It means just wrap yourself around. God doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't get impatient. He doesn't get tired of hearing your request. He says, bring it and then bring it again and keep bringing it and then just wrap your whole life around me because in that process we'll become tight. Wait for the Lord. Overwhelming responsibility. Do the things you know God has called you to do. Do them well. And simply trust. Trust him with the outcome. He's always paying attention. God hasn't forgotten anything that's happening in your life. He's paying attention to everything. Your life, your spouse's life, your marriage, your parenting, your job, your extended family. He's on it. He's on it. Loss and loneliness. Don't deny it. Don't deny it. But remember, God never forgets. He, all of those griefs, all those tears, he collects. And then he says, even as you're grieving and as you're carrying this heavy load, let me walk with you and let's uh, talk about me. Make me known to everyone. Let's pray. As we close in prayer, uh, let me remind you, every Sunday we have folks who are down front. If there's a burden that you are carrying that you would like to have someone carry with you and pray for you, uh, please come to the front and, and let our folks pray with you. Father, we, we are grateful to you that you do not fail us and you do not forget us. Even when life circumstances have loaded us down and, and placed these heavy loads upon us, we trust you to walk with us and to carry it with us. And we pray, Father, that we would be people who learn to cling to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.